God is great to us in his love. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series entitled Mosaic, Diverse People, One Family. And we're looking at 2 Kings, chapter 1, verses 5 to 19. As a child and still today, some of my favorite passages of Scripture are in in the Old Testament. Excuse me. As a child and still today, I'm just going to say that whole sentence again. Some of my favorite stories are in, are in the Old Testament, and this is one of them. So I invite you to listen along. Often when I read scripture, I ask you to follow along in your Bibles or look at the words on the screen, but this is a story. And so if you're comfortable, you can just close your eyes and listen and let it uh, wash over you. Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, the king, and highly regarded Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Naaman was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only the master, that is Naaman, would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would be cured of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master, the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. A lot of gifts, in other words. The letter that he took with him to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you, king, may clear, cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his robes and he said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone, me to, be, someone to me to be cured of my leprosy? See how he, the king of Aram, is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, He sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored. You will be cleaned, cleansed. But Naaman went away angry. And he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his, the Lord his God. Maybe he would wave his hands on the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, of Aram, are they not better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So Naaman turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you to be washed and be cleansed? And so Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean, like that of a young boy. 
And so Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, to Elisha. They stood before him and Naaman said, Now I know that there is a God in Israel. No God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, Naaman said, Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant. will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god except the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimen to bow down and he is leaning on my arm. In other words, when the king of Aram uh, enters the temple of Rimen to bow down and he's leaning on my arm. And I also have to bow there. When I bow down at the temple of Rimen, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Elisha replied, go in peace. So far, the reading of God's word. As we start this sermon, I've entitled this morning's sermon, Facing Discomfort, Facing Joy. And I've subtitled it, which I don't normally do, Growing in cross-cultural competence. There's a lot in this story of Naaman that we can't answer, that we don't have time or or, uh, space to answer today. Questions like, why did Naaman, when he couldn't give gifts, ask for two mules worth of dirt that he wanted to take back with him? If you're interested in those kind of questions, let's talk after the service, but that's not our focus this morning. Our focus is growing in cross-cultural competence. Within a church, growing in cross-cultural competence is about embracing the person who is in front of you as they are. Learning to love them, learning about them, and partnering with them to follow Jesus together. But if that's what this sermon is about, then we need to ask the question, what does the story of Naaman have to do with cross-cultural competence? So let me ask, answer that question very simply as we get started. Here's the answer. Everybody likes to bathe in their own rivers. Everybody likes to bathe in their own rivers. Naaman wasn't a weird, dirty guy who hated baths. That's not why he got leprosy. Today's modern equivalent might be something like acne. Some of us, especially like young people, get acne because of overactive sweat glands in our bodies. People with acne don't have it because of something they did or something they didn't do. Likewise, Naaman didn't have leprosy because of something he did or didn't do. And Naaman did want to be clean. That's very clear. But Naaman resisted the words of Elisha because Naaman wanted to be clean His way. When I say that everybody likes to bathe in their own rivers, I mean that all of us have a preferred way of doing things. All of us have a culture. All of us have a way that seems best to me and good to me and that helps me function in the world as an individual that seems best to us, that good to us and helps us function in the world as a group. Gert Hofstad, an international authority on cross-cultural social psychology. I don't know how many PhDs he has. There's several in there. 
This is what he says. Every person carries with him or herself patterns of thinking, feeling, and potential acting which were learned throughout their lifetimes. Each of us, all of us, have those ways of thinking and feeling and potential acting. But it's also clear that when, that, that our ways of thinking and feeling and potential acting are very different, sometimes radically different from one another. Certainly that's true across ethnic lines, but it's also true among generations, between genders, and in different socio-economic situations. When we try to force our way of thinking or acting or uh, potential, or thinking or feeling or potential acting, when we try and force our way on other people, we all get into trouble. So what is the church to do? Christians are called to seek God's way, not our own way, by partnering together. That's why growing in cross-cultural competence is so important for all of us. Growing in cross-cultural competence is necessary. It's the first step for us to partner together as diverse people. Within the church, as I said before, growing in cross-cultural competence it's about engaging, or excuse me, embracing the person who is in front of you as they are. Learning about them, loving them, and partnering with them to follow Jesus together. Cross-cultural competence is required. It's necessary for us to be a mosaic church. It's required for us to be the kind of church that God has given us the vision to be. But it can't be forced. It can't be done for its own sake. In other words, we're not supposed to grow in cultural competence because it's an interesting academic exercise or because other people are difficult or confusing. We're trying to grow in cross-cultural competence for two reasons. The first is that if we want to become a mosaic community, we need to work to see our own culture. We need to understand that our way of doing things is just one way of doing things. That others have other ways. And that God in his grace works through all of us and each of us. We also need to see that each culture, each group has part of the truth. Each of us see part of what it means to be the church. And while it can be in the short term uncomfortable to realize that perhaps we don't have all the answers, or that I don't have all the answers, growing in cross-cultural competence allows us to understand that while no group sees everything, together we can see God more clearly. And together we also get to see where God is leading us more clearly. And so this morning as we look at those three things I've said, learning about one another, loving one another, and partnering together, I want to share some of my personal journey, some of the stories from my life about growing in cross-cultural competence. And I hope that that will be beneficial to you, both as individuals and to all of us as a community as we try to grow together. We've talked for over a month now about God's vision for our Mosaic Church, but now the question of growing in cross-cultural competence is the same one that Naaman faced. Given what God has said, how will we respond? A little more about me. In elementary school and in high school, I was, that, I was and I still am, the eldest son of a CRC minister. And so in those settings growing up, people always asked me, when you grow up, are you going to be a minister like your dad? 
They always phrased it that way in a way that made me feel very uncomfortable. Somehow I couldn't answer yes. I love my dad and I respect him. And here I am. I am a minister. But people always wanted me to be a minister like my dad, like someone else. And the times in my life when I've stepped back and done some counseling, just under, tried to understand myself and who I am and my story better, those words, are you going to be a minister like your dad? They always return. It was painful for me to grow up in a church setting where I felt like people always wanted me to be like someone else, even when it was someone that I deeply love and respect. Later in high school, my dad, who was, and even then, uh, was even then and still is a good minister and a good father, he encouraged me to sign up for a program at Calvin Seminary. It was called Facing Your Future, and it was designed for high school students. It's now called DIG. Anyway, it was designed for high school students who were wondering, I wonder if ministry might be for me. And so we got a week at Calvin Seminary to take some classes and then two weeks to go uh, to the far reaches of the U.S. and Canada anyway. I wanted to go as far as I could, and so I ended up on the east coast of the U.S. in a place called Patterson, New Jersey. Now, as then, Patterson's makeup was about a third black, a third white, and a third was uh, everybody else who was neither black nor white. Patterson was poor, and Patterson was urban, right in the thick of the New York City sprawl. And even, or now, as I look back, on that experience of two weeks in Patterson, New Jersey. It was my first experience of black America. And now as I look back, I celebrate God giving us ethnic differences, differences that we can see just when we meet other people. Because given the fact that we are such different and diverse people, that that each of us as a person has a different way of thinking and feeling and potential acting, those ethnic differences are a beautiful gift, a beautiful reminder from the Lord that our different skin colors show that we are all different, that it takes work for us to embrace the person who is in front of us as they are, to learn about them, to love them, and to partner with them in following Jesus. I met many black people in Patterson, but one stood out in particular. He was an old preacher with gray hair, and he introduced himself and as a prophet. What a different experience for me, growing up in the Dutch ghetto, in the Dutch community. He introduced himself. He said, hello, my name's Reverend Miller, and I'm a prophet. But he was a man who was full of the Spirit and full of joy. When we were sitting down, there was, I think, 10 or 12 of us gathered around a circle, meeting with him. And uh, as we were sitting there, one of the members of his congregation walked into the building, into the room where we were gathered. And he jumped up and he said, Hello, saint! How are you doing this fine day? I've never been greeted that way. It was beautiful. As we got to know Reverend Miller, he said that he'd go around the circle and that he'd share with us whatever God placed on his heart to say. I didn't hear what he said to the first couple people because I was in shock. I was saying, do do Christians really do this? That can't be right. 
He must be faking it. Then my turn came, and he turned to me, and I didn't even have to introduce myself. He said, oh, Adrian, hello. Among other things, he told me, he said, Adrian, you're special. You're going to go through a lot of different seasons, but God will teach you to learn to depend on him. After we finished with me, he continued around the circle and was talking with others. And I, again, withdrew to my own mind and started praying quietly in my heart. I said, God, how can I accept this from you? This is so strange. If you're really speaking through this man, please, could you say something to me again? And as I said that prayer, I opened my eyes again. And Reverend Miller stopped mid-sentence and he looked at me and he said, Adrian, you're going to be okay. And then he carried on. I knew then that this God that I worship, that we worship, is much bigger than I understood. And I knew that I wanted to go into ministry. Two years later, I wanted to reconnect with Reverend Miller. I reached out to one of the people at Calvin Seminary that had been a leader and asked how I could get a hold of him. And I was told, oh, we're not going to Patterson anymore. The experience with Reverend Miller was too controversial. People were uncomfortable. Now, River Park Church, I ask you this morning, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, Would you not have done it? How much more when we are called to do a simple thing, to embrace the person who is in front of us as they are, to learn about them, to love them, and to partner with them to follow Jesus together. In seminary, I was part of a Christian day camp in a neighborhood where a CRC building had stood for over a hundred years. But more than 30 years ago, the Dutch people had moved out of the neighborhood and the remnants of the congregation were dwindling. I watched as the CRC congregation began to rent their building to a Hispanic congregation, La Casa de Mi Padre, my father's house. The CRC congregation had dwindled to about 35 people, or maybe even 25, but they still had a lot of money. Meanwhile, this Hispanic congregation was growing. It was young, and it was vibrant. It was also very poor. And I watched as the CRC guy, who I was an intern for, Pastor Dan, every time he talked with a Hispanic pastor, Pastor Jose, Pastor Dan spoke Spanish. And Pastor Jose always responded in English. As their two congregations struggled to share the building together, Pastor Dan and Pastor Jose loved each other deeply. I saw how they made room for each other to flourish. A few years after I finished my internship, that church congregation, the CRC congregation, closed. And they sold their building to La Casa de Mi Padre for a dollar. Years later, I was on the Council of Delegates, the executive board for our denomination. 
And my mentor who helped to bring me on board was a black pastor from Patterson, New Jersey. Isn't it interesting sometimes how God brings things full circle for us? My mentor pastor was very quiet and very reserved. As I was learning the ropes and what it meant to be on this, uh, this council, this board, I often asked her questions. I liked her. I, I still like her. And I would ask for her perspective. Some of the things that she shared with me when I asked her questions were profound. And so then I asked her, well, why don't you say these things in our large group, in our public meetings? She her answer was quick and simple. She said, why bother? They've already made their minds up. That was her experience. Time and time again in my life, I have seen the Christian Reformed Church face Naaman's question. Why should I even consider your idea? I have perfectly good rivers at home. Why should I even consider prophecy? It's uncomfortable and it's dirty. I have perfectly serviceable theology at home. It's good for us to invite people of color to the table. But why should we follow their ideas? We already know how we do things at home. It's no wonder when we use words like people of color that God leaves us feeling uncomfortable. To be clear, you can use whatever words you like. But calling others people of color or saying that we have ministries at River Park Church and then we also have these ethnic ministries on the side, it only makes the mistake for those of us in the major group to help us forget that we also have a color. That those of us in the major group also have a color, also have a culture. We have a way of doing things. Each of us. All of us, and our way is not the only way. Our way is not, certainly not just the Christian way. I keep using the word discomfort because it's not our normal human way to follow God in general. It's not our normal human way to build a mosaic church as partners together from different ethnic groups. It is uncomfortable at times. But if we are uncomfortable, then we should ask, why? Sometimes, like Naaman, we're uncomfortable because we're experiencing new things. New things are difficult for all people. People of all cultures and ethnic groups, ages, socioeconomic situations, and genders. Sometimes we're uncomfortable because we're in an ungodly situation. Naaman's slave was no doubt uncomfortable when he spoke to his master. The Israelite slave girl was no doubt uncomfortable that she had been forced into service in Aram. Sometimes we are uncomfortable because we don't want to do things God's way. Like the king of Israel. We're in deep distress because we think that God is calling us to do his work and that it's all on our shoulders. And I have to figure it out all by myself. If we embrace discomfort as a way of pride, we will fail. If we say to ourselves, well, I don't want to do this, but I have to do this in order to be merciful to others, we'll fail. If we try to do what God is calling us to do in our own strength and in our own way, we'll fail. But 
if we bend our wills to what God is doing, and if we seek God's ways together, if we seek God's rivers together, then God will bless us. My experience has been that partnering with diverse people is not about embracing discomfort. It's about opening our eyes to see the beauty of God's creation, to see the beauty of his creatures and his people, and to see the many different blessings that are available to us when we step out in faith, even if it's uncomfortable. Embracing the person who is in front of me as he or she is, learning about him, loving her, partnering with them to follow Jesus. This is a great joy that God has for us as his people. Reverend Miller saw something of God and heard something from God that I could have never accessed on my own. The partnership between Pastor Dan and Pastor Jose and their churches profoundly shaped me as a person. Those experiences are irreplaceable gifts from God. They're why I'm completely committed to our vision to become a mosaic community. We don't grow until we start working on ourselves. We don't grow until we stop trying to change others and and turn our attention to what God is trying to do in our own hearts. This is the, the essence of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, when he tells the gathered crowds, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You can see the same attitude in Naaman's slave. I know you want to do some great thing, but first, can't you do some small thing? Building cross-cultural competence is the small thing that's first necessary to do. This is what prepares us to take bigger steps of faith. I shared my story this morning because, or a part of my story anyway, because I can't tell you how to learn from others and how we learn from, our, from one another. I can't tell you how to love others and how we can love one another. These are things that happen when the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. They're things that happen when we desire to learn about each other, when we desire to love one another. Then we find out how. But I can at least share some instruction for how we can partner together. Cultural competence begins with understanding. And so as we try to understand one another better, I want to suggest a few principles for us for the road ahead. These are principles that I've borrowed from Craig Storty in his book, Cross-Cultural Dialogues. The first is don't assume sameness. Instead, expect that every person you meet, that people are different from you. Try to enjoy learning about them and celebrating those differences. Then number six, and yes, I know I skipped four there, but we're only looking at a few of What are many suggestions? So number six that he had was, you don't have to like or accept different behaviors, but you should try to understand where they come from. You may never get used to some things that people from other cultures do, but it can't hurt to find out why they do them differently. Understanding can help you make peace with different behaviors or practices, even if you don't like them. 
And number seven, most people behave rationally. You just have to discover the rationale. People have reasons for how we think, for how we feel, for how we act. People from other ethnic groups than your own are not trying to annoy you. They're not trying to frustrate you or confuse you. This is how they are. They come by their crazy norms the same way that you come by yours, the same way that I come by mine. Like wearing a coat on a Sunday morning up front. Imagine Naaman as we close this morning. Imagine Naaman one final time. He's been cleansed of leprosy because he listened first to his wife's slave, then to a strange prophet, and then to his own slave. Naaman is a changed man because of his encounters across cultures and cultural lines. He has grown. He has become a God-fearing man who even when he goes back to his home continues to worship the God of Israel and the God who is not just the God of Israel but the God of everything. What do you think happened next? We don't get to know, of course, the end of Naaman's story. But God gives us this part of the story because he wants to challenge us to see how our stories will continue. So let's end this morning by receiving God's grace for ourselves. First, receiving God's grace and remembering that changing others' attitudes and behaviors is impossible. We can only change ourselves. And changing our own attitudes and our own behaviors takes time. So let's not give up on ourselves. God does not give up on his people. It's one of the tenets of the Reformed faith, the preservation of the saints, that God is faithful even when we mess up. Instead, give yourself grace. Monitor your thoughts and reactions to other people. Wonder, or, or wonder, these opportunities to learn and to engage with others are opportunities for us to wonder, to be in awe, but also to ask, why do I do the things I do? Why do I respond the ways that I do? And also to wonder in awe how good God is to love us despite all of our craziness. Second, this is one that I'm very bad at. Let's try to learn to laugh together. To laugh at ourselves, to laugh with one another. After all, only God would bring together diverse people from different ethnic groups, different ages, different genders, different socioeconomic situations. Only God would bring us all together and then expect good things to come of it. So let's give ourselves the opportunity to laugh together, to be excited about what God is doing in our midst as we get to learn about love and partner with each other. And then with Naaman, we can go in peace because God is with us, calling us all together to step into new rivers. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, however far we have come on the journey 
of life with you. We thank you and praise you that you always invite us further. You are always drawing us closer, further up, further in, to more intimate relationship with you and with your people. God, we thank you and praise you that you are not satisfied to leave us in our broken condition, that you were not satisfied to leave Naaman with leprosy. But instead, like Naaman, Lord, you want to cleanse us all, to heal us all, to make us whole, not just as individuals, but as communities and as people. Thank you, Lord, for your heart and your love that you share with us. Give us the grace to share that love with one another and to receive that love for ourselves. What joy we have from you, Lord. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.